Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Mato's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Letter Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan follow the story of electronic dance music in the late 80s and early 90s from New York to Los Angeles as hip house emerges and rave makes its way to the States. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? And if I say that, you know, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I've got Ryan Hartness here with me to continue our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. Ryan, third chapter, takes us to Stranger Than Fiction, Los Angeles, California, September 7th, 1990. But eventually, think, eventually. Exactly. I, was I, to say, I, have, I have to get over this. Uh, it's bugging me because you get excited because you're like, okay, all right, Los Angeles rave scene. But, you know, it's really more of a destination. It's a journey to that place and time. There's there's a whole bunch. We're going to start in New York and we're going to go all over the place. Uh, and, and then we're going to land in Los Angeles. But uh, as, as always, there's always pay dirt. So I shouldn't get that upset about it. It's just, you know, the, the formatting and stuff like that. It's, it's a little bit of a, a bit of an odd duck at times. It's a bit of a swerve. I was going to say, first we detour through New York, but we don't really go anywhere else. It's just New York. And this is where we're paying the price for only talking about Chicago and Detroit in the first two chapters. You got to get into New York if you're going to tell this history. Yeah. And it makes, uh, it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, that that you know he wouldn't want to spend entire. I, I figure maybe we're going to end end up back with a little bit of more storm rave stuff because again, like it, 
it it's cool how it's not city based and it's more kind of jumping around uh it really does show the interconnectivity between everything that doesn't happen before and and right now we're we're starting at the new music seminar in new york and what i what i liked about this is that we're you know this is we're covering rave history from different points of view from different books and we've been here before at the new music seminar uh, with Anthony Wilson pumping out the Happy Mondays to a confused and unimpressed crowd of people. But this time, we get some more context. We're learning that the Chicago and Detroit guys were stuck on this panel with Wilson as well, who's basically saying, thanks for the the, the dance music, thanks for the house and the techno. We've turned it back into rock, and this is what's really new now. <laughs> yeah, this is a perspective we didn't get before. And uh, and what he's, what Ryan's talking about is the New Music Seminar 1990. Uh, before South by Southwest, the New Music Seminar was the big annual American Music Biz Conference. Um, started in the latest 80s. So this was kind of at the peak of the New Music Seminar's run. Anthony Wilson of Factory Records, who was also involved in the Hacienda Club in Manchester, a.k.a. Madchester. So this is a pretty clever way on Matos's part of getting what's going on in England into his story in America. Even though England's having this seismic pop cultural revolution with Acid House in this period, and America is pretty much resolutely ignoring it, there's still some echoes that lap back onto our shores, not just the music having been made originally uh, in Detroit and Chicago, and as we learn in this chapter, also in New York, um, but reverberations from the big success in England continue to hit, and including this this new music seminar panel with Anthony Wilson just making all kinds of mad claims for you know the future is now, we're the future, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, and he's on a panel with Screaming Rachel Kane, Marshall Jefferson from Chicago, Derek May uh, from Detroit, Robert Ford, who was a hip hop producer, who produced Curtis Blow's early hit records was on the panel and then this white co comedian keith allen uk comic who tries to tell derek may listen derek i may have white skin but look at me i'm black it's just like wtf it was <laughs> a different time it was a different time <laughs> indeed indeed well you know may and jefferson walk off the panel and um you know that tells you how different it was for them they they just called bullshit on it and and walked and 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 Matos, again, does a really clever job because then he segues, you know, that's about all the coverage Madchester merits, I think, in a history of American electronic dance music. It did not make it, a splash it at all. It did no. not splash one bit. And it's, it's funny because this, this this panel, Wake Up America, You're Dead, was supposed to be representative of all the stuff that's going on in the UK that's not catching on over in America. And it's really funny that they stuck that, uh, you know, the Happy Monday style sound in with all the dance music. And that ends up being like the big thing that comes out of it because that guy just ran the show. Yeah. And but it's also interesting that all the other panelists were Americans, black Americans who, you know, and hip hop was on the upswing. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious about the construction of that panel. And I mean, Manchester did make a bit of a splash. You saw the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays on MTV, for example. I was aware of it enough to try to get into it, but it just, it paled. And what Matos po points out is that American underground rock had only gotten heavier and heavier through the 80s. Like it started out with REM and Black Flag at the starting gates, but the Black Flag strain totally dominated. And the REM strain, you know, REM personally was very successful, but the bands that imitated them, you know, were pretty dead. 
by the late 80s. And so people like me were just like, where's The Rock, dude? Like, I think Matos nails that. The, the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses seemed like dance music to me. Like, it didn't, it didn't, you know, the rock aspect of it didn't, didn't click with American rock fans. And then it gets into the whole Marshall Jefferson story. And he's like the kind of the classic Chicago house producer who's um, having hits in England with um, his, uh, let's see, what's his group called? 10 City had four top 10 UK hits, but he felt like his label, SBK, the quote is the joke was my stuff paid for in Vogue's promotion. And well, that, that was, that was Atlantic. He was with Atlantic and he made all those hits and, and they were still treating him like the redheaded stepchild or the, the black house producer, uh, for, and, and just like keeping him in the background and not happening. And then he started to work with SBK and they just basically ripped him off. I see. I see. Okay, good, good, good. Thank you for clarifying that. Cause yeah. And it's the classic, um, dilemma you get in when you're a lo-fi, DIY producer. Marshall Jefferson made his, his records in his bedroom for very cheap. And I think the record companies expected him to always make his stuff for very cheap. And why invest money back into it when this kid makes his stuff for free? And so at Atlantic, you know, he's he's subsidizing, he believes, in Vogue's production. They were an R&B harmony group from the early 90s. Then he goes to SBK, where they have an act called Technotronic, a Belgian act, whose hit Pump Up the Jams is a total rewrite of Move Your Body by uh, Jefferson. And that goes all the way to number one, Technotronic tours with Madonna on the Vogue tour. Um, and they shelve Marshall Jefferson's album, which I think, you know, that's that's the whole thing. Because, like, musically, for a ripoff, uh, Pump Up the Jam isn't that severe of a ripoff of, of Move Your Body. It steals one melody and it's got a lot more going on, which has absolutely nothing to do with Move Your Body. Move Your Body has like a bunch of piano, is a really soulful male vocal and everything else like that. But, you know, you know, compared to ripoffs like Vanilla Ice stealing under pressure, it's it's mild. But if you're Marshall Jefferson and you just got, you know, the double slap of them signing you, taking your album and shelving it and then putting out their own song, which rips you off and goes to number one and they put them on tour with Madonna at that point, like it's enough to just make you want to just like move, move to Alaska and never write another note of music in your life. And, um, that's kind of what Marshall Jefferson did, but let's go ahead and play our next song. This is Looney Tunes. Just as long as I've got you from 1989. So Looney Tunes, why'd you pick that one, Ryan? You know, I'm doing something a bit different this week. All these uh -oh. tracks from this episode are from the Frankie Bones, Bones Breaks production, 1989 mixtape uh, that Michelangelo Matos included in his mixology section at the back of the book. If you're reading the book, if you're following along or you're doing your own research, check out the book. And at the back of it, there's a mixology, which is like basically each chapter, there's like five to ten essential mixes you should listen to at the time. 
and we're going to get into Frankie Bones. And this is basically as close as you can get to one of the cassettes that he used to hang at, hand out in New York at the time. And it gives you a really good feel for, for the sound that was, that was popular just at the turn from eighties to nineties with underground dance and Looney Tunes is, is Frankie Bones and Lenny D doing that together. That was like a massive hit in the UK that got them going over there a whole bunch and really realizing what was going on in the UK and Frankie Bones bringing that back to America and trying to recreate it here. Yeah, and this is, uh, again, a segue that Matos does going from the New Music Seminar that he tells the Marshall Jefferson story. So he catches you up kind of what's going on in Chicago. Then he brings it to New York. And basically, House only clicked in New York when people like Todd Terry and Frankie Bones start incorporating hip hop aspects into it as well. And and so he starts out actually talking about little Louis Vega, um, who had been DJing, was one of the first people to play house in New York. He was DJing at the Devil's Nest in the Bronx, started adding records from tracks and DJ International uh, to a set list that was usually Latin freestyle, which is, um, you know, kind of the Puerto Rican version of hip hop, grew up right with hip hop. It's basically a subset of hip hop, also regular hip hop. And then what he called D.O.R., dance oriented rock, which is, again, we've talked about this before, stuff like the Talking Heads, B-52s. I have to imagine that would also include things like New Order and uh, the British synth pop stuff. Um, yeah, a real melting pot uh, of stuff. But you uh, you can hear with a lot of that hip hop uh, the hip hop stuff and then the hip hop stuff, the, the house that was produced by hip hop producers really kind of got everything over the top. And it's funny because it sounds kind of like, uh, you know, hip house in past episodes that we've talked about was kind of this thing that never got going. But in this book, it's kind of explained, especially in New York City, as, as the bridge that carried everybody from a situation where playing house music would get a gun stuck in your face to play kind of hip house uh, would, would, would bring everybody in and get everybody dancing. Yeah. And it's also, and I think Reynolds kind of brought this home, but like reading this, having just read Reynolds energy flash, I'm referring to our previous series on Simon Reynolds energy flash. um, It's clear that the hip house stuff is an essential bridge between house and acid house and the hardcore jungle drum and bass hardcore continuum reynolds talks about so hip house actually turns out to be quite important even though in the u.s um it never it never broke huge it never became a dominant style because of resistance from hip-hop but this pretty well clarifies that there's a period of time in new york when dance sets included you know electro dance oriented rock and house and then and then you know people like todd terry come along and it becomes hip house and as as mato says new york didn't fully occupy house until todd terry he he mentions other people like bruce forrest uh, a dj at better days in manhattan who started playing house music early on and david morales his understudy started adding stuff to his sets in 1985 in 86 louis vega moves to the heartthrob formerly the fun house which had been the home of Jellybean Benitez, who produced Madonna's Holiday. So, again, that that school, the Jellybean Benitez school of dance music, which I would kind of classify in the electro umbrella. Is that a good place to put it? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think he had a lot of, like, Latin influence 
on a lot of his stuff. And this is kind of interesting how this house music, like uh, Todd Terry brings like a, a hip hop feel or swing to it. And Jellybean Benitez brought a lot of uh, Latin percussion to it. Same with like guys like Masters at Work. They did both. So it really is a melting pot that turned house. Like I, you say, you know, New York didn't fully occupy house until Todd Terry. I don't think I understood house until I finally got to Todd Terry. And and this time around, I ditched Spotify uh, because you're not going to find there's so much that was just left off of Spotify because it's dubiously legal and the licensing just isn't there. And I went to YouTube and I went on Discogs.com and I went deep into Todd Terry's early stuff and everything makes a lot more sense now when you hear Todd Terry's albums that he would make in, you know, some would say a day, some would say a day a track, but he was pumping this stuff out and you'd hear he'd make hip hop tracks and then he'd make house tracks and you were like, holy crap, everything from what I understand from that very omnipresent house sound comes, it's built off of what Todd Terry did, which is just a bastardization of hip hop into house. Yep, it's interesting stuff. And the funny part is Todd Terry was a wannabe hip-hop producer. He'd been trying to make hip-hop records for a long time, and then he just made his first house record just to show his friends he could do it. So he makes a track called Party People, uh, credits it to Royal House, and he got a deal in a day. And, and, and then he was off and running, and that's where he gets the whole rep of making records like A Day in the Life of 1988, which he called it that because he made it in one day. And then he claims he made the entire Todd Terry Project album in one day in 1992. Um, another thing is that Matos points out is he really used samples in a much more complicated way, like a hip-hop producer would, whereas the house producers in Chicago, according to Matos, mainly used their samplers to stutter their voices and, and hadn't really... Um, got into that complicated layering of putting tracks together the way hip hop does. And this yeah, is it, also where technology is starting to to push forward again and sampling is starting to get easier. Some of the stories you hear from guys who were putting tracks together in 1989 with like, uh, you know, four track tapes and eight tracks and stuff like that. It just sounds like an absolute nightmare using four bit samplers and stuff. And sometime I think it was around 91 or 92, you finally start getting samplers that can, uh, you know, do what you want without having you having to to basically have a degree and messing with it in order to trick it into doing it. And, and things start to get, you know, if not easy, then uh, not as nightmarishly complicated. Yeah. And, and keep in mind that even somebody like Rick Rubin, when he was making records like run DMC's raising hell or Beastie boys licensed ill, they weren't using samplers. They were using turntables and they were literally playing records like that. And then you get Marley Marl, uh, the great hip hop producer who was the first to sample drum sounds and re-trigger uh, them in his own beats. And so people like Todd Terry are definitely hip to what this new generation of hip hop producers starting with Marley Mall um, and then going into the bomb squad with Public Enemy and Eric B with Eric B and Rakim um, are doing. But let's go ahead and hear our next track. It's This is Landlord, I Like It from 1989.
And that was Landlords, I Like It, from 1989. And tell us why you picked this one. You know, it's just a, a lack of, of, of a housey groove. It's more of like a proto-techno coming out of Acid House, and everything is very bleepy, and you're getting the stabs in there. I feel like it's an indicator of everything to come, and it's cool that it was already getting mixed in here in 1989. Cool. And back to Todd Terry. He had another track called Can You Party? And then that one was clicking so well with the the hip hop hip hop crowd that he hooks up with the Jungle Brothers, who are kind of the lead one of the leaders of the Native Tongues movement along the tribe called Quest and De La Soul. And they redo that track as I'll house you in nineteen eighty eight. And that that was something I was aware of because I had the first Jungle Brothers album that had that track on. And it was definitely Stuck out like a sore thumb in the context of that hip hop album uh, and did make me curious. Not so curious that I ran out uh, and found a disco record store and tracked down what, what was actually going on. Um, and also he talks about uh, a track called Hot Music by Soho from 1990, produced by Pal Joey, a.k.a. Joseph Longo, that was very influenced by um, uh, I'll House You and the whole hip house movement. And then we get to Frankie Bones who you've already played one of his tracks and he's somebody who's been to England, come back to New York and is kind of an evangelist uh, for this stuff. He's, he makes these cassette tapes that he passes out uh, underneath the elevated train bridge in Brooklyn's 86th street. Um, you know, just passing out tapes, him and his brother going to cars stuck in traffic and passing out these tapes. And the tapes had the address for his record store uh, that he opened in April, 1990. Yeah, this guy's a real hustler, like, uh, and not in a bad way at all. I'm talking like one of these guys that that's a marketing, he knows what he's doing. You know, he's Frankie Bones. He's putting out bone, Bones Breaks records, and uh, it, it's just really good branding, and he's out there on the street. He's he's not, you know, one of those DJs that's sitting at home wondering when it's going to happen to him. He's making things happen. He's seen what's going on in the UK, and he wants to build a similar culture over here. Yeah, absolutely. And he hooks up with Lenny D, who's another New York DJ, and, and the two of them start cutting tracks together. Um, Bones have been cutting tracks, or actually DJing since he was 15, uh, I think in 1981, for roller skaters. So classic, like, you know, the big roller skating fad and, and let a kid get behind the turntable and do some DJing there. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. One of the things about both Frankie and, and, and Lenny D, uh, as to why they ended up kind of being roller skating DJs uh, or uh, roller disco DJs is that was basically what you had. There was like one or two clubs in New York where dance music was, was played and obviously they weren't getting those bookings. So, you know, they did a lot of international DJing because there was nowhere in New York for them to play. So they got, they, they had to go far and wide to kind of do everything before things grew big enough that, you know, they could get booked at something that wasn't what they were throwing. So. And roller disco was huge. I mean, it, it was absolutely inescapable if you're around uh, the turn of the decade from the 70s to 80s. I mean, my God, <laughs> you had to have roller skates in 1980 uh, and feathered hair. And Matos, again, has a pretty elegant segue where he talks about how Frankie Bones is also an evangelist, as in he brings home a bunch of tablets of ecstasy from England on one of his trips and, and um, starts passing that out. And that's kind of the beginning of the rave ethos coming to America. And that's kind of tricky because the music that triggered the acid house explosion in England 
came from Chicago and Detroit and, and New York, as we've discussed, but the ethos came from Ibiza, where they had combined ecstasy and dance music early on. And that that was what the real social revolution was in England. It was that combination of new music, new ways of hearing and dancing to the music, and new drugs to experience the music with. And ecstasy, as Matos points out, had really spotty distribution in the States at this point, and it, and it had not we never did see, uh, you know, a summer of love, second summer of love movement in the states. I mean, EDM doesn't really take over until the 2000s, and this ecstasy mixed with acid house to create rave culture becomes this underground thing, and that's kind of what the narrative of the book is going to be. And so he uses that ecstasy connection to mention to segue to the West Coast. So now we get to the West Coast, and he points out that E was called X. In California, it was the same way in Texas. I never heard anybody call it E back in the day. That, and and again, he gives Texas its properties. He says, you know, he points out that that MDMA, the the chemical base of ecstasy, was legal until 1985, but it was still coming out of Texas until the late 80s. Labs were still making really good stuff, and it was getting out to LA, and and then he explains kind of why LA was fertile soil for rave music. Number one, they had KROQ, K-Rock, which this is the station that Rodney at the Rock was at. This is why bands like Black Flag could pack an arena of 3,000 people in L.A. in 1981. This was the station that, before MTV came along, was playing groups like um, you know, the Human League, etc. And so L.A. had a really fertile... Uh, it was fertile ground for new music because they'd been hearing new music throughout the 70s, like glam rock, punk rock, post-punk, all this stuff that was big in England that never really made it in the States was big in L.A. because of K-Rock. Yeah, never underestimate the power of a really good radio station with a bunch of people who actually give a shit about the music. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's and a dying or dead art for uh, most of us in this country now, but K-Rock was a, a shining beacon for a long time. And yeah, if you were a kid and you would go out to LA, it would just be staggering. Everybody seemed so much cooler. And and you know, even people that you didn't think were into music would know about all the bands that you knew about. You know, in, in Texas, you were this big music nerd and you'd get out to LA and everybody's just as cool as you are. It's kind of humbling. Um, fortunately, I only got out to LA once in the 80s, so it wasn't too painful. But then there was also a big body of UK expats in Santa Monica. And so you had these British promoters who started doing after hours parties in downtown LA. And some of the famous ones uh, was Palooka Joe's, which was at the Hollywood Athletic Club. But otherwise there was very little house in LA clubs. There's a guy, Marquise Wyatt, who had come down from San Francisco, if I've got that right, was one of the few people playing house in LA discos, but or dance clubs. For the most part, and I love how he mentions that it's a lot of Tone Loke and Young MC getting played. This is the first wave of California hip-hop to get commercially popular. And it's funny to me, because Tone Loke and Young MC were just colossally big in 88, 89, 90. I had both and, their cassette tapes. Hey, uh, you know, it's the kind of cassettes that were that had good hits and then fell off pretty hard, if I remember correctly. But True. You could make a really good single mixtape out of the combined Tone Look and Young MC. I think Young MC wrote all Tone Look's rhymes anyway. But that stuff gets totally forgotten because of the all the emphasis on NWA and and gangster rap. But th this stuff was the first big California hip hop 
But so that's what's big at the time in Ally Clubs. Yeah, it's that and hair metal, I think they said. And just, just yes. if, uh, I can't even imagine. Like, I know that you kind of had had big hair back then, so it might not have been that <laughs> terrible for you. But but for, but for me, I'm just imagining that being the only musical option and just wanting to, like, die. Yeah, it was ha- hair metal was really brutal. And I was not I was beat up by a lot of Motley Crue fans in high school. I was not only later came to appreciate uh, hair metal to the extent that I would appreciate it. And I did not have big hair. I had long hair later on, but not big hair. So you're saying not all guitar music is the same. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, there are there are many families of guitar music, and that hair metal stuff is the absolute most hated uh, by all the other guitar music fans. But let's take a sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll keep talking about L.A. and rave in the early 90s. So like I was saying, there's a whole uh, crew of UK expats in Santa Monica, and they start promoting shows and playing house and acid house. Uh, La Casa was uh, a big one. Randy Moore, a guy named Randy Moore, promoted a show at Alice's house. I can't. I can't remember. Uh, the like. party. The party is Alice's house. La Casa was a. It was like a rental place that would sometimes have. Uh, what, what is it called? Like Ken Sierras or. Yeah. Consumers, the, yeah, that's yeah. when a, a Latina girl turns 15 and it's a big family celebration. And I love yeah. that image of they're having their acid house party in the same building at the same time as these families are celebrating. <laughs> this is this is like pretty normal. This brought me back to like how you would have like raves in a in like a big in a big banquet hall that had like six different rooms. And on one side you would have the rave and on the other side you'd have a wedding and they would sometimes meet in the middle to either great or negative uh, effect. But, uh, you know, all of these cities used to have like, you know, several venues that were known that you could use them for raves and they get used over and over. And some of them were beloved. Some of them started beloved and then people ran them into the ground and they're sick of them because it's the only place you can go. Uh, so, you know, that description of La Casa being like this, uh, regular haunt that was then used to set up Alice's house, which was a big, uh, Alice in Wonderland themed, uh, series of raves is very reminiscent of, of my own hometown rave times. And, you know, it just goes to show white people dancing pretty much the same, uh, whether you're on the West Coast or all the way up on, on the North Coast of the Great Lakes. Sometimes you need, all you need is some British people. You need a British flag on the flyer to, to tell you this is a real rave. And then you can go out there and you can try and emulate what's going on over in the UK. Yeah, it's a classic thing. It's this, the Brits imitate American culture and then white Americans love you know, take that as validation and imitate the Brits imitating the black Americans. It's, it's, uh, it's been a pretty good, you know, triangle of trade, cultural trade. And then this stuff gets out to Orange County and, you know, Orange County famous for punk rock bands like Black Flag and Adolescence and very different from the hair bands in Hollywood, but also starts becoming a, a hotbed for, for dance scenes. And you've got this whole crew of teenage promoters that all have nicknames. You've got Gary Richards, a.k.a. Destructo. You've got Stephen Hauptfer, a.k.a. Mr. Kool-Aid. You've got Davin the Mad Hatter, Michaels. Uh, and it was interesting, he was the only one that got the nickname in the middle, and the others were all AKAs. But they were doing a whole bunch of warehouse break-ins, and that's where you find, and we talked about this with Simon Reynolds, same thing's going on in England. You find an abandoned warehouse, a derelict facility, you snip the locks, you hook it up for power, you promote your show, 
you know, and as long as you can keep the fire department and the police away, you can pull off your party. And so they had um, Steve and John, John Levy were doing the moonshine promotion in Santa Monica. And I love how they they uh, one of their initial attempts was in a fish warehouse basement, which was too stinky to succeed. Yeah, that happens sometimes where you rent a venue and you find out when like 500 people are dancing in it that the smells that emerge from the walls is just, uh, you know, borderline toxic. Yep. And uh, <laughs> they learned that the hard way. So they moved to an abandoned TV studio, TV studio in Culver City. And then um, then you get a guy named uh, Doc Martin, who's a DJ. No confusion with the Doc Martin of the Doc Martin boots. Um, and he comes down to L.A. I think it was from North California, wasn't he? Yeah. And uh, it comes down to L.A. in September of 1990. He um, plays a party called Where the Wild Things Are. And a guy called Gerald and Adamski come down from England. Is that how you say Adamski or is it Adamski? Mm, I couldn't say for sure. Oh, well, those Brits and their pronunciation. But so it's interesting that you've got these British DJs coming over when the scene is so nascent. Like Again, it's one of those things where uh, uh, a British flag on your flyer does does so much. And people don't know much, but what they do know, if they see one of those names, it really it really bring, brings out the legitimacy. And obviously the people that are throwing this are in the know and connected, and they, they have a hit list of people that they want to bring over that they think uh, will be amazing. And as we'll find out later in the chapter, sometimes you bring these guys down and they're legit legends and the best DJs at the time, but no one knows, so no one cares and no one comes, and then uh, your shirt is gone. Yep, that, that can happen. And what I'm curious about is if these guys were bringing any of the Chicago or Detroit DJs down or if or if they had just cut out the original root generation already. Um, There's a couple of mentions, I think, in the other books of, uh, of some of the guys. Some of the New York guys were going down there uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think maybe Detroit and Chicago guys. Chicago guys didn't seem to move around as much as the Detroit guys and the Detroit guys were busy going to the U.K., yeah, and I think a lot of the the Chicago guys had already, um, like I know that Jesse Saunders had had a major label deal and was trying to do kind of a pop R and B thing, and that had failed. Marshall Jefferson, we talked about some of his frustrations. So I think that, and Frankie Knuckles had a major label deal as a producer, and he was not as successful as say Jellybean Benitez. So that first wave of Chicago guys is already kind of starting to crash and burn. And I think Derek May drops out of the scene or stops making new records and only DJs for a, a while. So that first wave of Detroit guys is starting to peter out, too. Um, so, yeah, I'd be curious if somebody like from New York, like Joey Beltram or Todd Terry, if they were DJing uh, in L.A. or coming out to California at any point. In My understanding scene. is it really depended on whether or not you were in a scene with uh, with the clubs to support you, like guys like uh, guys in New York City that that were installed there, like David Morales, famously rarely left New York, and a couple, the couple of times that he did, it it didn't didn't work out too well for him, so he just kind of decided to stay at his clubs where he knew the lay of the land and he knew the music that the people wanted to hear because they were his crowd, but then There's- I. Yeah. So everybody else, people that were moving around, uh, you know, you had to give up what you were making at home to go somewhere else. And in these days, it was so sketchy. Are you going to get paid? Are you going to get screwed? Are you going to have to buy your plane ticket back? Because the people who brought you there bought the plane ticket on a stolen credit card, which has happened to me. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> ouch, ouch, ouch. Yeah. Uh, um, interesting period. Then he talks about how uh, some record shops handling this stuff started 
getting established in LA, mostly around Melrose Avenue. So you have a little neighborhood where you've got prime cuts, which specialize in weird stuff like Italian house. Um, and then you've got street sounds, which was hitting, I would guess the mainstream of EDM at the time. You had a lot of Chicago house, a lot of Detroit techno, a lot of New York hip house, and also some of the English stuff coming over. And you also had DMC and beats nonstop. So, You've got the, the clubs or the raves happening. You've got some of the local DJs and you've got the record stores. And then the question, though, is where were the L.A. producers? Were any notable producers coming out of L.A. at this point? It was a bit of a slow pickup. Um, I know that there was some underground stuff happening, but uh, not not as much as other regions. Uh, and I know Moonshine did a good job of, of, of starting to focus on on the West coast and starting to release uh, some of these guys as a trance person, it was very obvious that there was no trance coming out of the West coast until Joshua Ryan came out with pistol whip. And then it started to get a little bit bigger. A couple of other uh, promoters or DJs started, started putting out tracks and stuff like that. But it, it was, it was a slow build. I, it was almost kind of like how in the UK there was like a, a period of time where they weren't making new records for the scene that they were participating in because there was just a bit of a, a marrow file feel for, for the music that it was like if it wasn't coming from overseas, it wasn't real dance music. So maybe maybe that was kind of an element of it. It was the foreign element of the music. Hmm. Could be, could be, but it's time for our next track. This is Renegade Soundwave, The Phantom from 1989. was the phantom by renegade Soundwave, 1989 why'd you pick that one uh because it's just it's got such a good groove to it and it's it feels really sun drenched when so much dance music feels like it's like designed for 4 a.m in a pitch black warehouse i feel like the phantom has more warmth and and that's something that comes up uh, a little bit over and over again in new york dance stuff and as well on the west coast for sure interesting and so um, I mentioned Doc Martin, and then he starts up his own after hours, the flammable liquid after hours, and and he's getting eight to nine hundred people in a in a venue with a three hundred person capacity. So, you know, already a success, and it's a diverse mixed crowd. It's got a bunch of hippies, got a bunch of uh, people getting off their late shift, the usual night crew, you know, waitresses, nurses, um, pimps and hookers, uh, drug dealers, that kind of stuff, um, Europeans, and 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 the gay crowd um, that always on the cutting edge of dance music so another thing that was interesting was that doc martin was apparently the first dj to hit la with modern beat matching skills who was doing you know two turntables to full effect so um that's interesting stuff and yeah like hitting the mixology section mixography section of this book is really fascinating because hearing these dj sets I hate to disagree with Simon Reynolds, whose book is so excellent. We learned so much from, but he's just dead wrong about DJs not mattering. I mean, when you hear these DJ sets and hear this music in the context of the way it was being played, and when you hear 
a particular DJ who's got his own drum machine and is beefing up tracks and syncing it in. There's just so much latitude for creativity and and for watching the crowd and engaging with the crowd and, and making sure this is keeping the crowd moving. I really do believe Matos is right that you really are only hearing this stuff if you're hearing it uh, in a DJ set from the time. Is that and especially curious? yeah yeah especially when it comes to a lot of these early dance tracks like when we were talking about songs versus tracks and uh, you know a song is a fully formed thing that's more enjoyable to listen to from start to end but you take a couple of tracks uh, and you give them to a knowledgeable DJ and he'll put it together and he'll create this this building euphoria of sound that'll that'll just take you somewhere else and it's uh yeah uh, the, doc martin is one of those guys actually my dj name doc savage is a combination of doc martin and and savage or uh so I that's not kind the 1930s pulp hero but no 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 i only found out about him after the internet improved a little bit so and i'm really glad arnold schwarzenegger didn't make a doc savage movie during the peak of my dj career because that was really <laughs> worrying me so but yeah i mean doc martin is just uh very impressive with with his skills especially for the time and uh one of those one of those guys that when you hear how he puts all this these songs together it's uh it's greater greater than you know, the sum of its parts is is much greater than the individual bits. Absolutely. And then you can go back and hear, you know, legendary DJs like Ron Hardy from Chicago's Music Box and other people. And you can really hear what made him so special or Larry Levin from the Paradise Garage. I mean, or Frankie Knuckles, for that matter. It's really worth going out. And also Derek May is a great DJ who plays a lot more house. He's not Mr. Cold, Icy Techno, like you would think from the records he produced. As a DJ, he's, he's very live. And then we get another one in Matos's sort of patented smooth segues because now he mentions that doc martin had opened up for delight which was um a trio out of new york lady miss Kier, a ukrainian dj dimitri ball and then they added a japanese dj toa te uh, i'm probably mispronouncing that but they had this massive hit in 1990 number four u.s it was glued to mtv i mean if you could if if it wasn't warrant or some other hair metal band in 1990 or mc hammer it was groove is in the heart and so that was a massive hit but their b-side what is love was uh you know totally accepted by hardcore clubbers and um and again it's this fascinating period to me we talked about this a little bit with soul to soul in the british scene and we mentioned technotronic earlier and we're about to talk about the cnc music factory but there was this wave of dance hit singles coming out mostly in the uk but some of them were, were hitting big in the us as well and so for me as a young music fan at the time i think matos nails it again where it seemed like Paula Abdul shit. It just seemed like whatever this stuff, you didn't know about this underground world. You didn't know about, all you saw was the tip of the iceberg. And that's yeah, what there, was, there was all that 80s, all that 80s dance hit craze stuff that uh, Ian Levine and, and, and those guys were kind of pushing. Uh, it, it was like a, a hyper, hyper pop. And it made, high and it, yeah, high energy. It was, it was, it was ridiculous. Uh, and, and all of it sounded kind of weird and, and and like novelty tracks each individual hit when it would come out people were like oh this is just another novelty track but but you know a couple of years in and you realize none of this is stopping and this is a whole genre and it's uh it's burning up the charts yep yep and and um and you also had that wave of dj records like pump up the volume by mars that was coming out of england around the same time so it all kind of got 
glommed in together uh, as as novelty hits, like you said. But then um, also, I remember when when Pump Up the Volume came out, I had no idea what what was going on. Like, what what is this? It's so completely different. I could see how uh, you know without any other points to uh, to to kind of figure it out. Of course, it would just sound like like a completely bizarre. It's like Axel F. Uh, what do you, what do you, or, or, or that song by Yellow? Like, uh, there's, there's so many of these tracks that come out, and you're like, okay, this is just bizarre. This is, you know, barely even a coherent song. Yeah, I didn't have any way to put it in context, and also because um, Pump Up the Volume sampled "Paid in Full" by Eric B. and Rakim, and I think even had a picture of Eric B. and Rakim in the video. And I remember getting the Eric B. and Rakim album wanting pump up the volume I, I was very pleasantly surprised with what i got with the eric b and rickham album but i still didn't have pump up the volume you know and so it was, it was very confusing to fans who had no idea you know what a remix was how sampling worked any of that stuff and much less these different family trees that were slowly pulling apart and that's where cnc music factory comes in because there's this record called do it properly which was released under the nombric of two Puerto Ricans, a black man and Dominican. So it was like four DJs work, four DJ producers working together on that record. And two of those guys, one of them was David Morales that you've already mentioned, but um, the two of these guys that are on that record, keyboardist David Cole and then producer Robert Clavillas, is that? I'm not sure how to say his name, but apologies to the late Robert Clavillas, but they get together and make a longer term partnership. The CNC Music Factory put out a full album called Gonna Make You Sweat 1990, sells 5 million, title tracks number one. My kids know these songs 30 years later. I mean, um, massive impact on pop culture. They go on to produce hits for Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, make it happen for Mariah and I'm Every Woman for Whitney. And then Civilis dies uh, pretty young in 1995. And, and if you want to Google CNC Music Factory, there's a really fascinating story about the rights to the name because some of the singers and rappers that were part of the factory have been touring using the name and Cole doesn't like it. And there's been lawsuits and fights over the name and stuff. So, you know, no hit goes unpunished. And those guys definitely paid their dues. And it's interesting how it's uh, sometimes guys like CNC Music Factory and Technotronic and stuff like that get kind of put in a corner when it comes to rave history or dance music history because because of their mainstream success um, or, or maybe it's just because they don't fit uh, perfectly into the rubric of house or techno or whatever else like that. But, you know, uh, these are this is this is this is key, important parts of, of history all this music had massive influence across across genres and uh i always hate it when the euro stuff gets uh doesn't get its due yeah i mean this 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 stuff definitely made its mark and and and, and you know those were legit dance makers and most of them were underground before uh they made stuff that that hit so i don't think they should be punished retroactively but let's go ahead and play our last track and this is Two in a room, do what you want from 1990. Get on a mission of motion all night long and work that body, don't you quit? 
belong to this hip house hit. I won't dictate ya or debate ya. Cause all I want's to motivate ya. Do what you wanna do and shake that big fat booty until it breaks. And that was Do What You Want by Two in a Room from 1990. And why did you pick that one? This one's hip house and I picked it because it's almost like an instruction manual for the hip hop crowd where the, the, the rapper is explaining, okay, you want to go get the girl, get on the dance floor, dance with her and then take her home. And it's like, don't get upset because we're playing this dance beat. Like let you, let your body go to it, do what you want. It's like, it's kind of turning. It's, it's, it's psychological, man. I find the lyrics hilarious because they're trying to trick these people into dancing and just saying like, look, you want to dance. Like if you actually like listen to yourself, you can feel it. You want to dance. So just dance. So I found it a uh, pretty hilarious. And again, all these tracks from this episode, that Frankie Bones, Bone Breaks production, 1989 mixtape floating around online. Just Google it. Good, good stuff. And yeah, well worth listening to in full. And then he wraps the chapter by finally getting to the party that he, that the chapter is nominally about. This is the stranger than fiction party. Um, that happened in L.A. on September 7th, 1990. And um, this is Randy Moore, the U.K. expat uh, that we talked about. He throws it in the Shrine Auditorium near the University of Southern California campus, which is a very sketchy neighborhood. Uh, it definitely was in 1990. It's It's got a big laser show. He's also got rides in the parking lot. He's got bouncy castles and bumper cars, which is going to become, you know, a rave tradition. Lots of local DJs. He plays himself. Marcus Wyatt, the guy we mentioned uh, who had been playing house music in the gay clubs in L.A. first. He also got Ron Core, Ron Decor, Mark Lewis, Steve LeClaire, and Frankie Bones comes in. And then there's an act from New York called Vandal, which is a really interesting uh, couple. Peter Dow and his wife, Vanessa Dow, who have been big political activists in the last decade or so, but it's fascinating. Oh my God, it is that Peter Dow? It's that Peter Dow, yes. It's That's that weird. Dow, isn't it? Isn't it? But um, <laughs> he uh, he also uh, has a track on the Sex in the City soundtrack, so that's kind of what funds his political activity, I think, because the residuals on something like that are, are epic. Um, but this was a couple that she was a dancer and a singer. He's a jazz keyboardist, again, with the jazz influence on the dance music. I, I, you cannot understate that, like especially going through Reynolds, and then we'll, we'll see that again and again. All these jazz fusion musicians that, that I had written off as just having pursued a dead end found a new channel and really made an impact on dance music. And so um, they start putting out records. Oh, and they some, the, Moby makes his first appearance in the book because he sometimes plays bass for Vandal when Peter and Vanessa need somebody to beef up their sound. And their first um, record is, is It Could Not Happen, which they put out under Critical Rhythm as the act. And that was on New Groove Records, which is New York. So they're kind of closing that circle and connecting us back to New York. And Joey Beltram makes his first appearance. He uh, had gone to Belgium, to Ghent, with Vandal in 1990. So Probably uh, part of like a, a label tour. Like that's how they used to kind of do it was they would bundle their artists and they would take them around on the road. So Beltram and Vandal together on, on that whole thing from like one stop to another. Yep. And and so, you know, Matos is, is weaving these threads together and telling his big story. And he's got a lot of quotes from Vanessa Dow who's talking about the Stranger Than Fiction event that it somehow brought together a subculture. Like she could really feel something happening. Unfortunately for Randy Moore, it wasn't happening enough to sell out the Shrine Auditorium. He only filled it halfway full. He lost $30,000. And this is going to be a continuing narrative of 
sort of waves hitting high watermarks and receding. Like it's getting, the story of of North American rave from 1990 to about 2006. Is that you know you'll have flashes, hot flashes, where everything's going great, and then promoters will take a wash and uh you know thirty thousand dollars actually isn't even that much in in the in the context of when you throw a big party and and it doesn't work out there's so many i am very fortunate to say that i have never lost more than like maybe two or three thousand dollars on a party but that's because i always had a spreadsheet and i always stuck to the spreadsheet and i never allowed myself to 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 put enough money up that uh that definitely wouldn't come back to lose that much. But I mean, I know people like I have like several, uh, acquaintances from just Montreal and Toronto who have lost more than $30,000 because they decided to bring over like four legendary techno DJs from Berlin or like, you know, a bunch of hardcore guys from France and, uh, it goes quick. And then because you're sketchy and you didn't properly promote the party or, or just because the cops shut it down after it starts. So, so everything's rented and paid for, but nobody's come in and you haven't made any money back and you still have to pay for everything. All of a sudden it's just like, boom, that's like, you know, $60,000 right there. Ouch. Yeah. So you can lose more than your shirt in, in the promotion business and, and that's going to be happening again and again and again. So any final thoughts on this chapter? Anything you think he missed or um, I don't know. I thought he did a really good job of weaving together the different pieces and doing it in a way that feels like a narrative. Yeah, I mean, uh, last night a DJ saved my life is almost like a textbook and it's it's snarky and it's got fun. It's funny like uh, uh, and then and then Simon Reynolds energy flash is is kind of like a personal ponderance almost with a whole bunch of, of interesting philosophical ideas about it. And the underground of Ma- is massive is just a really fun narrative story uh, that that you just you're on a ride. And uh, and because we're we're knowledgeable from the last two seasons, it, it's kind of like a run Lola run where it's like you're seeing everything from different angles every single time. And there's always these fun new little Easter eggs that you're discovering about these events and times that you thought you already knew about. Yeah, it's like the difference between reading this now that I've read those other books, and I've spent so much time listening to the music and learning about it. And the first time I read it, when I didn't know the difference between like Jesse Saunders and Kevin Saunderson, it's just mammoth. <laughs> it really makes a big difference to know who these characters are. Because at this point, when I read Moby, oh, I mean, Moby always got a flash because he's so famous. But like when I see Joey Beltran pop up in the narrative, I'm like, aha, you know, and, and, and it means a lot more to me than it did. Uh, the first time I read it through. So I'd have to say, like, to me, it's like that Brewster and Broughton kind of had the vision and were the first ones to say DJs are musicians and we should record the history of this music and and kind of pioneers in that. And then Reynolds, to me, is the best critic of these guys. Like, you know, every episode I would have some quote about some clever description he had of a record but I feel like Matos is by far the best writer and, and is telling a story, a really complicated story. Um, but in a way, you know, with with pull through and, and we'll, we're going to keep following it. And next time uh, he does kind of follow the same narrative as Reynolds, which I'm curious about. I, I wonder. 
to what extent this is the true history and to what extent that Reynolds kind of blazed the path and, and Matos is following it. But next time we're going to be going to Northern California for the finale of The Gathering plus UFOs Are Real, San Francisco, California, April 11th, 1992. So we're up into the 90s. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been reading The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. Thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan head up the California coast to check in on dance music developments in Northern California in the early 1990s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.